Well, Father, our Lord, we do come before you today. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you, Father, for being so gracious to us. Lord, giving us another day of life and breath in all things, Lord, especially uh, yourself and your presence, Lord, um, your church, Lord, and your your bride and your the body of Christ to enjoy, uh, to be uh, encouraged by, and we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be encouraging to one another to learn how to stimulate one another for uh, love and good works, especially as we see the day drawing near. Father, we pray your blessing over our time. Lord, give us uh, the mind of Christ. Help us to understand and give us discernment as we look into what your word has to declare to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well... um, Today, we are finishing up. Wow, everyone's real close. Yeah. This is weird. I don't even know how to be. Okay. We've been looking at uh, the covenants that God has made, several covenants, and today we're looking at a covenant. We call it the covenant of grace, is what some theologians have referred to this as. And one of the reasons why they've talked about this is because um, is because we saw um, a couple of weeks ago just how that man in his initial relationship with God in the garden could not have could not obey the commission, uh, the stipulations there of that agreement that God made with man, which was known as the covenant of works, or some people refer to it as the Adamic administration, which basically means that God and man were in a covenant relationship. God gave the man certain stipulations. He gave the man certain things that he must obey in order to be rewarded with life. Well, we know what that was, right? God told Adam, you know, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of that tree you may not eat. For the day that you eat of that tree, you shall certainly die. Right? And we saw that he did die, and it was an extensive death, meaning he died spiritually, he died physically, and, uh, and, and um, he began to die progressively as well. So, um, so obviously, man could not, on the basis of that agreement, have fellowship with God. And so God had to take other measures in order to restore fellowship with God between God and man. And so this is where uh, we looked at last week, um, what we call the covenant of redemption kind of kicks in. The idea that God in eternity made a covenant between the members of the Trinity, if you would, to accomplish redemption. And that each member, Father, Son, and Spirit, each one of them had their obligations in the covenant. They had their obligations to uphold. And so statements like Jesus makes in John 17, you know, I have accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And um, those types of things definitely speak to certainly some sort of agreement between the Father and the Son. Now, the covenant of grace, uh, historically, Reformed theologians have pointed out that it's very similar to the covenant of redemption in that it is a covenant that has to do with salvation. It is a salvific covenant. Um, Are there any covenants that you can think about in the Bible that are not salvific covenants or that don't necessarily have to do with salvation? The what? The land covenant. The land covenant? Well, that that would be maybe more of, um, uh, there's no necessarily land covenant. You know, there's that land is within certain covenants, 
right, is promised, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant. I'm talking about when, um, when God walked through the burning pots. Yeah, that's the, the, yeah, with Abraham. Yeah, that's, I mean. yeah, that's right. So that's part of the Abrahamic covenant. But I'm thinking more specifically of the Noahic covenant. The covenant that God made with Noah was not a salvific covenant because he made that covenant with all of mankind, with all of the creatures of the earth, with, with the entire world. Uh, so that covenant was not a salvific covenant. It was a covenant that ensured that the world would go on, right? That the creation would be perpetually preserved and reserved. Now, that's really interesting if you think about it because... Um, you know, theologically speaking, I mean, God's covenant with all of mankind is not a salvific covenant. I think that's just very, very interesting. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the governments of the world, for example, are not in covenant relationship with God. But what God has done is he has promised to preserve, to preserve mankind. So in one sense, the Noahic covenant does serve the purpose of redemption, even though it is not redemptive, even though the covenant doesn't stipulate how man will be saved. But the Noahic covenant does serve redemption in that it preserves it, right? Because what is promised in the Noahic covenant? That God will not do what again? He won't flood the earth. But what does it, but what, but what do we know from Peter that the Noahic covenant did also promise? That it's being preserved now for what? Which way? Fire. Fire, right? So the Noahic covenant at the same time assures, okay, God will flood the earth again. However, he will preserve it for the day in which he will judge it again, this time through fire. And that's where Peter goes on to talk about the elements will melt with a fervent heat, all of those types of things. So just amazing the covenant structure of Scripture, how it all really goes together. But turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 this is where, when you're when you're thinking about the um, when you're when you're thinking about the covenant of grace, this is where theologians begin to talk about it, and that is in Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. In the middle of God pronouncing judgment uh, for the fall, judgment for the serpent, judgment for the woman, judgment for the man, but in verse fifteen he interjects a bit of a promise where he says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, that is a very simple primitive. You say, you're packing all of this covenantal stuff into that verse. Well, remember, folks, that initially, initially, uh, you know, we're looking at things from a very primitive perspective. We don't expect there to be a ton of detail. Uh, it is fleshed out later. But we do know, we do know from this text that Scripture affirms that Jesus did, in fact, do that. That he did, in fact, come for the purpose of destroying the serpent, of crushing the head of the serpent, as if you would, uh, for example, I'm thinking of passages like 1 John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, John tells us, to destroy the works of the devil. In Mark 1, 24, the demons understood what was entailed in the mission of the Messiah, 
when they said, What business do we have with one another, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know that you are the Holy One of God. So even the demons understood it was the mission of the Messiah to destroy the devil, the demonic powers, to have victory over the demonic realm. So in this covenant, we have to ask, well, who are the parties involved? So three things, right? There is, in these covenants so far, there's the parties who have been, uh, who have been stipulated, the parties, there's a condition that has been placed, and then there is a promise of some sort. Now, as to the parties, theologians have sort of debated this, but really it is God, God, and probably the best way that I would put, say this is God and mankind in Christ. In Christ. And that is described with the word seed. Uh, your seed. And ultimately, I mean, turn, to, um, turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 3. Because there you do see the word, one of the big gripes that some folks have with this is, well, the word covenant, remember we looked at the fact that there is no, um, there is no reference to the Hebrew word berit. Uh, that's how they transcribe it, okay, berit. Um, there is no direct reference to an actual word berit, which means covenant. Uh, but... Uh, that is to be expected because, I mean, we're in Genesis chapter 3, and we're so far being given very, very little uh, revelation, uh, theological revelation. But if you go to Galatians chapter 3, there the Apostle Paul does speak of God being in covenant relationship with Christ. Uh, and, and he uses this theology of the seed again. Much of the Bible is seed theology. It's just amazing. But uh, let's maybe begin by looking at verse 16. Are you there? Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, right? It says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, he says, but rather to one. He says, uh, and to your seed, that is, Christ. And so there, when God is making a promise with Abraham and to his seed, we are told that Genesis 12, but more specifically Genesis 17, that is referring to Christ. That's amazing. <coughs> what I'm saying is that the law, that is the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate, here it is, a covenant previously ratified by God. And so there, uh, apparently this promise that was made to the seed, i.e. Christ, according to Paul, is conceived of as a covenant that he made with Christ. And so what theologians are saying is that the, um, uh, the covenant of, that he made with Abraham is just a future expression of the promise that is contained for us in Genesis chapter 3. That's why they say this is all part of God's covenant with Christ. A covenant that means that he will save people who are fallen in Adam. Uh, it's really beautiful because it is God's answer to man's failure, right? I mean, God uh, uh, had to act sovereignly. He had to do something about the fact that man failed and that man was banished from the garden. And how is man going to be restored and reconciled with God? Well, God takes sovereign initiative. He takes the initiative upon himself 
to then redeem man through the covenant of grace, through this glorious gospel promise. How many of you guys have heard that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the proto-evangelion? You've heard that before, right? It is the first gospel, right? Proto, proto from protos, first evangelion, gospel. So first gospel. So Genesis 3, 15, this promise that the seed of the woman will destroy uh, the enemy and sort of typologically signifying that the curse would somehow begin to be reversed. Whereas the, the serpent had the upper hand in the garden, what is promised in Genesis 3.15 is that eventually uh, the serpent would be destroyed. And if God made a covenant between, between Christ and his seed and the, the seed of the woman, Christ, and all of those identified in Christ, um, what is the condition of the covenant? The condition of the covenant is no longer works, do this and live, but now it is faith. Faith. It is faith in the promise. Faith in what God has promised. And you see maybe evidence of this if you turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, you kind of begin to see already people placing their faith in the promise. And um, you see this. Was Adam and Eve saved? Yes, because God clothed them with the animal. Kim gave me the weirdest look. Like, I don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a major theological question. Was uh, Come on, let's get back down to basics, right? Was Adam and Eve saved? Before or after the fall? Well, we know they're, they're not saved, you know. Uh, well, yeah, after the fall, of course. They <laughs> yeah. were saved, but they still, I mean, they disobeyed. I mean, just like we do as Christians. No, no, no. So what you're saying is that before the fall, they were saved. Right. <laughs> now you're saying then they fell, so that's you know before and then after. But when did they continue though? After they. So what we're saying is that after they fell, okay. I'm talking about right now, guys. Right now, is Adam and Eve saved in heaven? Yes. Lock step. Yes. Somebody say no. Huh? They are saved. Okay. All right, I'm just wondering if you guys are tracking. Whatever they all say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, look, there's no verse that says Adam and Eve are saved. There's no verse that says that. But I think there is evidence of that, and, you know, you have little glimpses of evidence of that. Look at, chapter, like I said, chapter 4 of Genesis. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said... I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. What a remarkable statement, right? I mean, to me, there's so much theology in that statement. See, we, we, uh, we brush right over Genesis, right? Because it's such a simple, primitive story, right? You had Adam and Eve, there they are in the garden. Okay, you can eat anything, but if you eat this tree, you die. They fell, you know, the serpent, the temptation. We make little coloring books out of it, right? But there's so much, to me, so much theology embedded in this because it shows, number one, that Eve was expectant of the promise, which to me signifies and it implies that she indeed had faith 
in what the promise promised, namely victory, redemption, a reversal of the curse. And so she expects the promise, she, because I would say she believes in the promise. So she's looking to the Lord for this promise, and then she believes that she has seen the fulfillment of the promise. I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Um, some people go so far as to say that she believed that she uh, gave birth to the deliverer the, uh, right there with the birth of, of Cain. She thought that this was the deliverer. She thought this one was the man. But look, at she, she also has apparently a relationship with God because she sees that God helped her. So God was providentially providing for her. And so she saw that God, she saw God's benevolence in her life. Um, uh, some, some people go too far. Be careful of this if you read some Genesis commentaries, which I don't really think that this is what it says, but there is a grammatical ability to translate the verse that says, I have gotten a man child, the Lord. So some say, see, she thought she gave birth to the Messiah. I would say that's a bit, um, I think that's reading too much theology into it at that point. I don't think that she thought she gave birth to the Lord. I think she thought she gave birth to the promised seed. Okay, And I don't know that she understood all of the significance of what was being told to her. Any questions, comments, statements about that? Nothing? So the condition is faith. That is the point of it all. And that is what the Abrahamic covenant really makes plain, right? So it takes, it takes the very primitive promise of Genesis 3.15, and in, by the time when you get to Abraham, it begins to explicate how this promise is to be facilitated, namely by faith, by faith, so that Abraham becomes the paradigm for all biblical salvation, even to the New Covenant, even in the New Testament. What is Paul arguing in Romans chapter 4 about the nature of saving faith? He's arguing based on Abraham's faith. He says, look at our father Abraham, right? He believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham really, that's how he becomes the father of faith. That's how he is reckoned the friend of God. That's what it means to be, according to Galatians chapter 6, or chapter 3, verse 9. That's what it means to be the friend of God, like the man of faith, Abraham. Uh, just amazing. And what is promised? What is promised in the covenant of grace? According to theologians, what is promised is life. Life. What kind of life? Eternal life. Eternal life. Salvific life. Right. Um, restored fellowship with God. Um, thank goodness God gave us more covenants so that we can look at to understand the nature of this eternal life. Um, uh, eternal life is the favorite word or the favorite phrase for what gospel writer? John. He loves to speak of eternal life. If you would, he substitutes the language of the kingdom of God out of Matthew and other gospels, and he replaces it many times with eternal life, because really, in one sense, they are synonymous. But, um, but uh, in order to understand the quality of this life, the covenants of God repeat this phrase. Uh, here, turn with me to Jeremiah, 
chapter 31, because there you have, um, there you have the promise of the new covenant. So what is the nature of the life that is promised here? I think you, we see the climax of this in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. Jeremiah 33. And I'm, I'm zeroing in on a phrase that's used throughout Scripture, and it's this. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That phrase, I will be their God, they will be my people, is repeated over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture until we see the final fulfillment of it. It's part of Pauline theology. Um, this applies to us today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Let me read to you what he says there. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And so what is the context here? Paul is instructing uh, the Corinthians not to be participants in idolatry, right? Not to partake of idol worship and, and certain idolatrous practices in the culture of Corinth. And, um, and that's why he says, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, <laughs> watch this remarkable promise, this remarkable statement here. We are God's temple, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. <laughs> and so what Paul is saying is that we are now living in the reality of what was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. That God is our God, and we are his people. And of course, we know that the climax of this is revealed uh, in heaven when we arrive in the heavenly Jerusalem which is Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he himself dwelt among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. It's the same allusion back to all of the redemptive speeches that are given that say this very thing. And as a matter of fact, it goes back to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, which connects us to the covenant of grace and the promise that is given there in Jer uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you would, Genesis 3.15 kind of gives us this truth in a kernel, right? It is the incipient truth that is later fleshed out in Abraham, fleshed out in the new covenant. Um, Genesis 17.7. The same exact type of thing is mentioned here. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Here it is. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. So this is what the promise looks like. This is what the promise looks like. Um, Again, uh, throughout the history of the covenant of grace, what theologians have posited is that uh, the covenant of grace has taken on different shapes and sizes, and it has been administrated through all of the different covenants that are going on in the Bible. We've already talked about uh, the Noahic covenant. I want to read you something that 
I want to read you something that, um, that uh, Wayne Grudem has to say here. Listen, listen to this quote. He says, The covenant that God made with Noah after the flood was not a covenant that promised all the blessings of eternal life or spiritual fellowship with God, but simply one in which God promised all mankind and the animal creation that the earth would no longer be destroyed with a flood. In this sense, the covenant with Noah, although it certainly does depend on God's grace, or unmerited favor appears to be quite different from the uh, in in the parties involved, God and all mankind, not just the redeemed. So what's important about that is because by the time you get to Abraham, the covenant of grace, they would say, is the first time the covenant of grace is administrated in a different fashion, because there it is with the redeemed. It is. It is specifically, if you would, to make it the easiest way I could explain this, is that it is a covenant between God and his elect people in Christ. That is the easiest way that I can explain it to you. Um, any questions? Any concerns? Um, I, I mean, to me, really, this exemplifies the, the beauty of the covenant structure of Scripture. That God has installed all these different covenants and, and that these are superimposed upon the Bible. And, and I dare say God doesn't do anything apart from covenants. Nothing. We have a covenant-keeping God. That is one of his names. That's one of his titles. A covenant-keeping God. Right? And the beauty of a covenant is that what God is saying by putting a covenant together is he's saying you can trust me. <laughs> to fulfill my word. I bind myself with an oath to these covenants, right? Like Tony pointed out, the cutting of the animals and splitting them in half. God is saying, let it be done to me like what's done to these animals if this covenant is not kept. And so God is there prefiguring even the sacrifice of Christ in order to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. If it takes for my son to be split in half like these sacrificial animals, then let it be so. And we know that it was so. So God keeps covenant with his people. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 1. Because like I said, in the Abrahamic covenant, the components of the covenant of grace are more explicit. In fact, the New Testament authors saw the gospel spelled out to Abraham um, and fulfilled by Christ. Um, it is not too much, folks, to say that Abraham knew the gospel because that is precisely what Galatians 3.8 tells us. Let me just read that. I'm there, so you stay in Luke 1. What did I tell you to go? Luke 1. Let me just read again to you uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, watch this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. <laughs> That's remarkable. What's well, Two remarkable things there. Number one, the scripture is in existence in the time of Abraham. Did you hear that? The scripture preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And so number one, the scripture, whether orally or through some other inscription that we don't know of, um, it was there. It was present. It was in existence. And it preached the gospel to Abraham in the promise that was given to him. And 
also the gospel is present in the Old Testament. That's what's remarkable. Uh, one of the things that I do love about covenant theology is that it binds the book of God together, right? Into one continuous, harmonious revelation of God's uh, salvation, his redemptive history. It is one harmonious book from the mind of one author. It has one unifying message throughout so that our faith, what is... Um, what does uh, Jude say? I will remind you of a common faith, right? Common, remember um, Hebrews chapter one, we looked at that already, verse one, it says that God long ago when he spoke to the prophets, through the prophets in various ways and at various times, right? So what is he saying? This is the nature of God's revelation. He speaks to the old covenant people, to Abraham, to Noah, to Adam. He spoke to Moses, to David. He spoke through the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all of these prophets. And now he has spoken to us, right? So the same author that spoke to them is now speaking to us. Uh, but look at the Luke 168, because the New Testament author saw the gospel uh, spelled out to Abraham, and they saw the promise of Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. Just amazing, the expectancy. Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This is the way they saw the coming of John the Baptist, who is announcing the Messiah. It said, He accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation. See, they knew the deliverer had come horn of salvation. What is a horn of salvation? <laughs> we don't talk like that anymore, right? <laughs> we don't go around saying, well, that's a, that is a horn of salvation, <laughs> right? We don't really talk like that. A horn is a symbol of strength, right? It's a, it's a symbol of might, right? So a mighty Savior has come, in other words, is what he's saying. Um, he says, for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets from of old. That's very synonymous to what you have there in Hebrews 1, 1, 1. Salvation from our enemies, which the disciples continuously misunderstood. But anyway, well, that's another matter. And from the hand of those who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Wow, right? It all goes back to that. It all is a fulfillment of that. And exactly like Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, so what was sworn to Abraham, that covenant, was not nullified by what came through the law. So what Moses did in giving people the law did not overthrow the promise that was previously 430 years prior given to Abraham. So scripture is still connected to the Abrahamic covenant. In other words, what the Old Testament covenants were doing, they are supporting Christ. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 again, please. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. They are preparing the way for Christ. We know this because we quote it all the time. Right? Especially you weigh the master folks in here. Right? The law was a tutor, the leader is a Christ. You know, great comfort. Right? 
I hope he doesn't hear that. That's a terrible impersonation. <laughs> right? That's right. The law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And what does it say? Again, verse 19. What then? What, why, why the law then? It was added because of transgression. See, the fact that the law came in means that it was, it was, it was brought. The word there, added, means it was brought in from the side. It was to assist God's covenant purposes. Why? Because it was necessary. Because of transgressions. Having been ordained through the angels, which has everything to do with what we're preaching about here lately in Hebrews, right? It was ordained through the angels by the agency of a mediator, i.e. Moses, until the seed would come, watch this, to whom the promise was made. The promise was made to the seed. This is remarkable. So this is God promising to Christ, <laughs> right, to save man in this way. God promised to the seed that this would happen. This is just remarkable. Um, going on. Where are we? I got too excited. Mm -hmm. I was just say Verse 19. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's right. Amen. That's right. Now, let's look at verse 20. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, uh, for if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So the law was never ordained to impart life, right? Was never meant to do that. Because why? What does uh, Romans 7 say? Is there something wrong with the law? No. The law is good, righteous, and holy. So there's nothing wrong with the law. What's wrong is the flesh. <laughs> that stinking flesh that just can't obey. <laughs> right? Something we can all bear witness to. Right? No, he says, no, may it never be, for if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be, be, might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up for the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What is the whole purpose of Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers? What is the whole purpose of it? The whole purpose is to hold man there until Christ comes. To keep him in check, if you would. Because without it, he would spiral out of control into anarchy. I mean, think about what man did even under the law. The children of Israel, their disobedience, 
their recalcitrance, in other words, their rebellion, their stubbornness. Imagine that. Imagine without the law, they would have just went in that lawlessness, total anarchy. Thank goodness for, thank God for his law, right? One of the uses of the law is that it governs mankind. It, it, it is useful in that it assists in the governing of our consciences collectively. Um, Grudem says this, So the covenant promises to Abraham remain in force even as they found fulfillment in Christ. And then he quotes Galatians 3.29. Keep going forward. He says, And if you belong to Christ then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Isn't that beautiful? Listen, you are more of a Jew than an ethnic Hebrew is if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is saying. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Who is a true Jew? One who, outward, who is outwardly? No. One who's inwardly. One who's circumcised? Nope. One who's circumcised of the heart. Whose praise comes from man, right? And who do you think of that when the praise comes from man? I think of the Pharisees, the scribes. The, they want the praise. They stand in the corners. They blow the horn. They tithe, right? They, they announce their fasting. All of that. They love the praise of man. And what Paul is saying is that the true Jew, his praise comes from God. He don't need nobody to see what he's doing. He just needs God. He just needs to know, I am well-pleasing to God. That's all that matters, right? I tell you what. I mean, there's no secrets to Christianity, but if I can give you one. <laughs> there's, no, there's no key to the Christian faith, but if, I can, but if I can name one, this is what it would be, right? Seek to, to, to live for God's glory first, above all. Seek to be pleasing to him and you will win the battle anywhere else. Right? But if you seek to be pleasing first to your spouse, to your husband, to your wife, to your children, to your accountability partner, to the church, to everybody else, right? Well, those can easily be compromised. But if you seek to be pleasing first and foremost to God, then you can win the battle anywhere else. Um, any questions, statements? Nobody? Come on, I know you guys got questions. Well, what you were saying. Don't make me start calling names. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. Yes, yes, sir. Jesus himself told us somewhere in Matthew, I forgot, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. Amen. Amen to that. Have your priorities straight. Yes. Yeah, put God first. Put, put Christ first. Make him preeminent yes. in your life. Yeah, amen. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just going to add to that, you know, a, a it was a reminder for me, you know, several years back during homeschooling my children. It was a quote that Paul Washer had stated, you know, just about just because you're, even if you're just a mom, a, you know, a Christian mom that homeschools, that's not what makes you um, godly or that's not the core of being pleasing to God. In other words, you know, even that in itself can become an idol. Yeah. And again, you know, seeking to, you know, uh, be the best mom or the best, you know, a godly mom instead of seeking Christ first. Even through that. I mean. Amen. Yeah, I would just add, uh, 
on that. I know homeschool families personally when I was homeschooled through a lot of high school where you know their kids went off into apostasy and they're like, what happened? We homeschooled. <laughs> um, and it's sad to say that uh, the priority is Christ. Like the song we, we sing here a lot, and they all I have is Christ. So we need to keep that as a priority for sure. Yeah, and seeing, seeing the the coherency of Scripture, how this covenant is, you know, reaching to us. I really am encouraged by this. Yeah. Seeing the covenant of grace yeah. laid out all through Scripture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, the covenant of grace and what theologians are simply saying is that God uh, somehow made a determination to save us no longer on the basis of the works that we do to keep us in fellowship with himself, no longer on the works that we do, Adam has already proven we cannot earn our righteousness, right? So understand that Adam was not righteous, okay? Adam was created, you know, in a state of innocence. He was not uh, sinful, but he was not righteous. In order to become righteous, he needed to either earn that righteousness or have that righteousness earned for him and it imputed to him, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, that's why the doctrine of imputation is so important. Yeah. Imputation is the reason we can never, ever, 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 ever have fellowship with the Catholic Church. You know, evangelicals and, and, and uh, Catholics together, they, they drew up a statement where they, they listed all the areas of agreement. We agree very generally on a lot of the uh, justification language, but we do not agree on imputation, right? Imputation. Um, but what the covenant of grace is assuring is that we will have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to our account, not on the basis of our merit, but on the basis of his merit. The only condition is faith. Faith in the Redeemer. Faith in the seed, faith in the promise, that's it. That is how we will be justified. That's how we will be ultimately redeemed. Any last questions or statements? Um, there's so much. I mean, we can just go on and on and on. Um, I like, let me just give you a basic definition just to clear up all the confusion I've caused. Uh, Grudem gives a very good definition of what the covenant of grace is. He says, the covenant of grace is the legal agreement between God and man established by God after the fall of Adam, whereby man could be saved. Although, although the specific provisions of this covenant varied at different times during redemptive history, the essential condition of requiring faith in Christ the Redeemer remains the same. And that's right. That's right. Anybody who has ever been saved is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's it, right? That's what the book of Hebrews is going to tell us. How are the old covenant saints saved? By putting their faith in Christ. Why did Moses do what he did? Why did he choose to suffer with the Israelites in the tar pits and, the, and, and, and in the, uh, you know, making brick? Why would he rather go do that? It says that he regarded what? He esteemed the treasures of Christ better than the treasures of Israel. Wow. Moses 
was treasuring Christ? Yes, by faith. Egypt, you meant, I think. Egypt, Egypt, yes, ma'am. Did I say Israel? Okay, Egypt. That would be really bad, right? <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. I mean, he's about to lead Israel out. That's right. That really corresponds to our lives today, right? Treasuring Christ above all else, above this world. Well, boy, we're going to talk about it. It's just amazing to me, the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, how it works. From Sunday school to sermon. Have you guys kind of noticed? So much of what I talk about in Sunday school, I end up talking about in the sermon. And there's no correlation. I don't try to plan that. You know what I mean? I don't try to, I don't try to plan it that way. I'm teaching systematic theology. We just happen to be on the covenant of grace. But so much of what we're talking about has direct connection to what I'm going to be preaching about. So listen for it. Any other questions, statements, anything? Theological questions of any kind? Scott, I see, see a concerned look on your face. No, no. I just, so if we're out witnessing and talking to people, when they ask for, you know, because this comes up, I think, quite a bit, or some, you know, they ask about, well, what about the people in the Old Testament and, and so forth? How are they saved? And they bring up works. Is it accurate to say that they were, they're saved by the promise of Christ in the future to come? Yes. The promise to come, I'm sorry. Yeah. Is that, Is that accurate to say since the work in the crucifixion has, actually hasn't happened at that point in time yet? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, retroactive faith, right? It's, it's applying the redemptive work of Christ retroactively to them as they look forward to it by faith. You see? I mean, even Job is looking forward to his Redeemer. The day that he will stand with him, you know, he's already having faith in the Redeemer, you know? So, yes. Yes, sir? In Judaism, is there like a strong um, looking forward to it? To, to, in contemporary Judaism, looking forward to the Messiah, is, is that very present that you know of among Jews that you've come across or you've interacted with? I have, yeah, sure. Yeah, I've talked to uh, Jews that believe their Messiah is yet to come. Right. Yeah. Which is very, very sad, right? right. It's actually exactly what Hebrews is answering, is if you do not go on to maturity by going from Judaism to Christ, okay, biblical Judaism, uh, there's nothing left for you. <laughs> and God made sure of that in 70 AD by destroying that temple and making, making it certain that no further sacrifices will take place there in the Holy of Holies. None of that. It's Amen. gone. Amen. You see what I'm saying? Um, so they have nothing to look forward to. You know. So now what does Judaism have, have to do? They have no sacrifices. They have no temple. They have no ability to obey the Torah that, that specifies how to <laughs> engage in temple worship and all of these things. And so they create a very liberal doctrine of repentance, shuva, of turning, renewal, spiritual renewal, and it all becomes very existential, very personal, right? And so, um, yeah. I mean, Jesus is the one that told the Jews, I leave your house desolate, you know? So, I look forward to the day when God is going to redeem Israel. You know, one day I believe God is going to save in mass the Jewish people. They'll look upon him whom they have pierced. They'll come to their senses of who the Messiah really is, you know, so. Isn't it interesting, like, Islam even has, like, a body? You know what I mean? I'm just thinking of, like, 
the Messiah, you know, I mean, yes. here, here Israel, I mean, the Jews, they're waiting for him to come, which we know when he does, it's, you know, it's just interesting how it's all pointing to, like, you know, the Muslims and the Mahdi, yeah. the, and, yeah. uh, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, they have a Messiah figure, they have a, they have a, a person that they believe is coming that will be the... The twelfth Imam. Matter of fact, they believe he's already here. That's the doctrine of the of the twelfth Imam is that he has eternal life, and that he actually has never died. He's always existed, um, and that he attends the the Hajj, the pilgrimage at Mecca every year. So he's there secretly, and one day he will emerge, though he's been among us all this time. It's really wild. But um, anyway, enough about the Mahdi. Let's let's close in prayer and go to worship. Okay, Father, Lord, thank you for. Uh, the simple gospel truth that even though as humanity fell in Adam, cursed, separated from God, you gave such a glorious, glorious promise, a promise of a redeemer, a promise of one who would bear the curse for us, who would reverse the curse of the fall, and who would destroy our enemies, who would destroy the enemy, Satan, Lord, and would deliver us, Lord, and bring us safely back to you. We thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus. Um, I'm excited as we move forward from here to study Christology. Please bless, Lord, all of our sessions. In Jesus' name, amen.